Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and welcome. It is a veritable blockbuster tonight. One of our finest living Australians, the 25th Prime Minister, John Howard, will join me discussing his latest book of essays, A Sense of Balance. We'll have plenty of time. I know you'll find it instructive and entertaining. He writes with clarity and conviction. There are no John Howards around today, unfortunately. Well, sadly, the Morrison saga continues. I'll have something further to say, but my primary point will be a simple one. Perhaps the former Prime Minister and the Governor-General should go. They've damaged constitutional respect and our faith in democracy. And I'll have something further to say about the saga in New South Wales. The Premier admits that Barilaro has done nothing wrong, but he's lost his job. They're having an inquiry to find out if the very talented Stuart Ayres did anything wrong, but he's lost his job. And remember Alini Patinos, another minister? She's lost her job and no one seems to know what she's meant to have done. It prompts a question, what is the definition of incompetence? Anyway, look, strap yourselves in. As I often say, a great night in front of us. Let's get going. You're watching Alan Jones on ADH TV. Well, before we go to John Howard, the Morrison saga continues. And sadly, whatever legacy he left has most probably now been trashed. He's not improving the situation by press conferences in which he ans his answers appear ridiculous. He was asked today why he didn't tell Karen Andrews that he had assumed joint responsibility for home affairs. He firstly said he'd already answered the question, but then he said, quote, those powers were exercised by a democratically elected leader and were done so lawfully by me, unquote. That's called foot in mouth. So he did exercise powers, which the parliament and his party and his cabinet believe were the prerogative of the Minister Andrews. Well, then he was asked what he was apologising for if he believed his decision to take up the portfolios was prudent and right. After all, he did say he was sorry for, quote, the offence that was caused and that, quote, I regret the offence. But in answer to the question about Karen Andrews, he said the powers designated to him were, quote, exercised lawfully by me. Yet in the next answer, he refers to the exercise of those powers as an offence, and I regret that offence. It is a man out of his depth, I'm sorry. The fact is, as Prime Minister, he sought from the Governor-General and was given portfolio responsibilities exercised by his colleagues. He didn't tell his colleagues, he didn't tell the Parliament, he didn't tell the voter. Somehow, he was able to maintain secrecy, and when asked, why did you deceive the Australian public and the Treasurer and the Finance Minister about this, he argued that the country was in, quote, a rather extreme situation, unquote. But hang on. He took on Administrative Powers for Industry, Science, Energy and Resources in April 2021, which cut across the role of three other ministers. He took on Treasury and Home Affairs in May last year, over a year after coronavirus had hit. Hardly a rather extreme situation. Elsewhere today, he said, we understood to be acting completely lawfully, unquote. Who's we? Scott Morrison and the Governor-General. No one else knew. Which brings us to a very important point, or several points, which bear no relationship to any argument that all this is some hatchet job on Scott Morrison. This behaviour raises questions about the operation of the Constitution to a level of scrutiny not seen since the dismissal in 1975. The matter to be addressed is how the Prime Minister exercised a power in the administration of the country that no one knew existed. Are such ministerial appointments and arrangements likely to be made again? How do we know the answer is no? 
It was clear from everything that I was hearing prior to the last election that the electorate did not trust Scott Morrison. I told you 12 months ago that he couldn't win the election. But can we trust the Governor-General? What are his constitutional obligations? His defence yesterday didn't demonstrate a high intelligence quotient. The Prime Minister of Australia goes to the Governor-General seeking authority to enter into secret arrangements which would enable him to override the decisions of Cabinet colleagues and the Governor-General doesn't blink? What advice did he seek about the constitutionality of all of this, let alone the appropriateness to say nothing of the secrecy? Well, according to Governor-General Hurley, he didn't have to know. Quote, the Governor-General signs an administrative instrument on the advice of the Prime Minister, unquote. So why do we need the Governor-General? So, if the Prime Minister advised the Governor-General to swear in another 20 members of his party, that is, buy them off, so to speak, because the Prime Minister might be facing a no-confidence motion, and he gives them all a Guernsey, so they'll vote for him. So, Governor-General, I've created 20 new portfolios, EDR in stuff. Does the Governor-General say, yes, I've acted on the advice of the Prime Minister? This is primary school nonsense. Yes, he is required to act on the advice of the government of the day in making ministerial appointments, but he doesn't have to do that without asking a few hard questions. The first one would be, are these appointments necessary? Couldn't we wait until someone was actually sick and then determine the particular model of appointment that would apply? A further question, as things stand, how will these arrangements work? Supposing Morrison has validity in his argument that he was trying to create backup capacity, why wouldn't he explain that to the voter? Why wouldn't he say why he was taking those measures? Why wouldn't he first get the authority of his cabinet, as is the practice in the Westminster system? Why wouldn't he tell the ministers involved? It's clear he didn't consult cabinet and had no plan for when such powers would be exercised. The whole idea of responsible government is a system based on what's called collective responsibility. That is, deliberation by cabinet, approval by government, and then secure the appropriate executive authority from the Governor-General. In other words, as I said yesterday, the argument was that he needed these powers in relation to Keith Pitt, the Resource Minister, because Pitt wanted to approve a licence to search for oil and gas off the New South Wales coast. And Morrison needed the powers because he disagreed with Keith Pitt. Well, this shows a complete ignorance of the parliamentary process. Under the Westminster system, the Minister Pitt would make a recommendation to Cabinet and would try to persuade Cabinet to his position. Morrison's job, first among equals, would be to persuade the Cabinet to another position. Cabinet then takes responsibility for the outcome. But dangerously under Morrison, it was a Cabinet of one. He took on the powers so that he could personally refuse the licence. And now you, the taxpayer, are up for more money because that decision is now being contested in the federal court. As I asked yesterday, wood ducks sitting around the cabinet table, what were they doing while all this was going on? It is impossible to document the constitutional principles that Morrison has ignored. It is true that ultimately, he didn't exercise most of the powers that he had granted himself, except in the dying days of his government when, in order to win votes, he thought he should override the National Party on gas without telling anyone. But what's really happened is that the public now are entitled to be suspicious of the decision-making processes in Canberra. And like it or not, Morrison has undermined public trust in our democracy. But Morrison is gone. The Governor-General remains. What questions did he ask the Prime Minister? What independent opinions did he seek? Where are they? Are they in writing? What concerns did he raise with the Prime Minister? And if he raised none, he must now consider whether he should remain in his post. I said yesterday that there has always been an arrogance about Morrison based on his insecurities. People out of their depth often behave arrogantly to disguise their lack of ability. Consider his answer when he was asked earlier this week his response to Albanese's concerns when they were first raised. He said he wasn't paying attention to day-to-day -day politics. This is a man who's a Member of Parliament on a salary of $217,000 who this admission is not paying attention to day-to-day -day politics, has shown no respect for our system of government. The question now has to be asked, should Scott Morrison 
and Governor-General David Hurley remain in their current roles. But then, if the Governor-General goes, does he finish up costing the taxpayer what a former Governor-General, Dr Hollingworth, is costing 700000 a year? A pension for life of 365000 315000 run his office. Is that what you get for not being able to do your job? Or would Morrison qualify as a former Prime Minister for the taxpayer-funded expenses that Malcolm Turnbull racked up in 12 months? $350,000, enough to buy an affordable home in some regional town. But that doesn't include the Turnbull pension. There are serious questions that this all raises about our system of government. But what is clear is that the taxpayer is being ripped off and lied to. The only further question that needs answering is, how often? Well, look, as you know, on this program, we say things as they are. Often they are things that others don't want to say or aren't prepared to say. Pleasingly, not only have I passed that stage in my life, but also I don't think I ever reached it. So I'll tell you something that won't be said in the weeks ahead. Never has our country needed Australia's 25th Prime Minister, John Howard, more than it does now. The strange irony is the Liberal Party wheel out John Howard every time they want to rally the faithful. But the same Liberal Party ignores the Howard message. In his most outstanding recent work, John Howard, A Sense of Balance, if we had, as the Conservative Party do in Britain, a training school for future candidates, no one standing for Liberal Party pre-selection in Australia should be allowed to progress to the next stage without answering questions based on the latest Howard series of essays, appropriately titled, as I said, A Sense of Balance. Not only has John Howard become a significant Australian historian, but he writes with clarity and conviction. To all parents out there whose children and uni students are being brainwashed in the classroom over climate change, the Howard essay on climate change and nuclear power is compulsory reading. One of the virtues of this series of essays is the refreshing disposition by Mr Howard to concede when he was wrong, when he may have things, done, things, done things differently, and to give credit where the other side has done well. He certainly belts the notion of an elected president right out of the park. He clearly points out the difference between referenda and plebiscites. He has this ability to make the digestion of his message an effortless exercise. Read the case for GST, for example, as opposed to an income tax. He makes a simple point. We must all earn an income to survive, but we do have some discretion about what we can consume. In other words, as I've said many times, you can therefore legally avoid consumption tax, GST, by choosing what you consume or buy. John Howard's grasp of history is revealing and refreshing. For example, speaking about the American Civil War in this book of essays, the essay slows you down. When Mr Howard writes, quote, the US fought a terrible civil war that claimed more lives than the nation has lost in total in all the military conflicts in which it has subsequently been involved, unquote. And proof of the fact that we need about a dozen John Howards in the Liberal Party today in the essay on choosing the leader, he modestly makes the point that, quote, during my almost 12 years as PM, I wasn't involved in any leadership ballots. There were none either for the leadership or deputy leadership. He makes the further point elsewhere that in all his time as Prime Minister, the top three posts, Prime Minister, Deputy and Foreign Minister, were occupied by the same people, Howard, Costello and Downer. Well, let's hear from the author, our 25th Prime Minister, John Howard. I am the view, as is the American practice, that the honorifics of President or Prime Minister should remain with any such person once the position has been not given, but won. So Prime Minister Howard joins me. Prime Minister, congratulations on this splendid anthology of essays. But may I commend you for the opening sentence, which should appear at the entrance to every classroom and lecture room in Australia when you write, Australia has been kind to me as it has to almost all who've been born in this blessed country or have chosen to live here, unquote. Why are we swamped, John Howard, with such negativism in politics, the media, education and commerce? I find that distressing as you do because you have won the lottery of life to be an Australian, no doubt about that. I suppose it's our natural tendency to self-deprecate we see it as a badge of honour in Australia if you self-deprecate in relation to yourself, which of course 
is a tautology. Any grammarian would correct me on that. <laughs> uh, however, um, it's extended to our country. We don't take enough pride in all the firsts that Australia has won. We do in sporting first, but I wonder how many people watching this program realise that the secret ballot was first conceived in Australia. Uh, I wonder how many people understand that women had equal voting rights in Australia with men several decades before they did completely in the United States and the United Kingdom. They're the sort of things that uh, should be known from the very beginning. They're examples of mm. Australian mm. excellence. I know. And you amplify that point. You say you're very comfortable with the phrase, the Australian achievement, quote, as a positive and elegant, yet not overblown description of our nation. But you make the point that, quote, others are obsessed with re-adjudicating the past. To them, it's all about guilt and dispossession. I mean, these points need to be made because, as you say, those views persist. You say most Australians then as now wanted to improve the lot of Aboriginal people, persistent with that. They valued the fact that they were part of Western civilisation and it knew that, but for the British settlement, the modern, vibrant and free nation they've loved and enjoyed would not have come about. No, That's it, not taught, is it? No, it's not. And, it's, and worse still, because it's not taught, it's not understood. Most Australians want to do better things for Indigenous people. I think over 90% of the community recognise that we could do more. What we need to do is to understand that the way in which you do more is to make sure Indigenous people become part of the mainstream of Australian society, that by lifting their educational, their employment and their other opportunities, they can achieve what others do, but we don't. We obsess too much on adjudicating or re-adjudicating the past. Now, the past is the past. There were wrongs done, but there were some good things done. The important thing is what we do now and in the future. And I hope that that attitude infuses the debate we're now having about the voice. But I doubt very much uh, that it will. Let me say on that issue, uh, my view is that I have no argument at all with a proposition that says at some relevant place or in some relevant place, our constitution should recognise the undeniable truth. And that is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were here first. Nobody can argue with that. Once you go beyond that, you get into problematic areas. And I, I worry that this whole debate about uh, the voice uh, uh, really sidesteps the responsibility we all have. As Jacinta Price, the new and vigorous senator from the Northern Territories pointed out, we all have an, op an obligation to fix the underprivileged, the deprivation, the abuse mm. and the like mm. in the Northern Territory. And you don't do that mm. with symbolic gestures. You do it by improving services. Absolutely. And you, you make the point that you wanted the words, the Australian achievement, to be the key component of the bicentennial celebrations in 1988. But as you say, the Hawke government was in power. And I love this bit. You said, and in an early act of cancel culture, an unknown expression in the 80s, it discarded the Australian achievement in favour of the empty and limp tag of living together. Well, it, we're all living together in a sense. Yes. But um, what was wrong with the Australian achievement? It was, it was the title that Malcolm Fraser wanted to give uh, to the celebration. And I thought it was, as you uh, correctly recalled, uh, a, a, a modest, relevant, but not overblown description. We have achieved a lot. We are a liberal, open, democratic society based on the Western tradition. We're part of it, but we have very good relations with our neighbourhood. We're open to people from all around the world. We once had a racially discriminatory immigration policy. That is no longer the case. There are 1.4 million Australians of Chinese descent. Chinese is the most widely spoken foreign language in our country. So we are in every way an open, welcoming society. For heaven's sake, we should be rather prouder of that 
then obviously yeah. we are. Talk about a sense of balance. You make a very valid point when you write, quote, political parties are no longer a representative, as representative as they once were of the section of society disposed to support them. And I believe this has serious consequences for the effectiveness of political systems worldwide. So in other words, the parliament doesn't now represent adequately the cross-section of people who are voting. No, Why is I that? agree. That is right. Um, it's interesting. The, the last... Chifley Labor cabinet that was defeated by Menzies in 1949 was a far more diverse group than the current Albanese cabinet. Now, I'm sure there's some good men and women in the Albanese cabinet, but Chifley had uh, quite a, had a couple of farmers. Uh, he had uh, some ex-soldiers. He had a publican. Um, he, he had a tobacconist. Now, that's yeah. practically a criminal yeah. offence <laughs> these, these days. Yes. <laughs> My point is that, sure, he had trade union leaders, and rightly so, but uh, in, in an age when trade unionism has fewer adherents now than ever before, uh, it is, they are disproportionately represented. And the same can be said of our side of politics. Uh, there are far too many men and women on both sides of politics whose whole career experience has been politics. Uh, give me the man or woman who's uh, been in a profession, uh, applied a trade, uh, worked on a farm, uh, worked in the public service, whatever it is, before they've got involved in politics, except on a part-time basis. Now, mm. a couple of parliaments ago, close to 50% of people from the coalition side had had in their previous career experience involvement in politics in mm. some way. Now mm. that's fine in your spare time, if I can put it that way. Yep. When politics was at night or at the weekends and mm. you had another job during mm. the day, but I think we are seeing yes. the balance tip too far. Well, as you say, as you say in the Albanese government, we've only got uh, the Attorney General Dreyfus, who actually has been out there in the private sector for a, for a sustained period yeah, of time for, as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, you, you also write about the declining numbers in political parties, and you say other organisations haven't escaped that decline. You talk about the churches and Rotary and PNC and local sporting uh, sporting groups. Why do you think that is? Have political parties become smaller and less representative of their constituents? Well, Alan, I think the, the non-joining mentality covers everything, not just political parties, but it has an acute relevance with political parties because they are the ones that produce the men and women who make the decisions. And we have seen in current generations a reluctance of people to join organisations. And as a result, you get an even heavier concentration of people whose only life's pursuit is politics joining political parties. Now, that can produce some outstanding people, but it can also produce a mentality that sees politics uh, as a game. Now, why is it that we've had so many uh, prime ministers on both sides in recent years? Is it because we have a greater number of people who see politics in factional and game-playing terms rather than in long-term policy development mm. terms. Maybe that's an explanation, yes. but, but I think it's, I mean, you, you, it's you highly relevant. You dwell heavily on this factionalism. Just a quick word from you on that. How much is that destroying the fabric of getting the very best people? I mean, you mentioned about Chifley with lawyers and two farmers, a dentist, a publican, a tobacconist. Uh, I think the only lawyer was H.V. Everett, wasn't he? Um, but, but how has factionalism destroyed the willingness of people to put their hand up? Well, it discourages people from nominating in the first place because if they're not chosen or ordained by a faction, they don't even bother. A long time ago, uh, when factionalism was less influential, uh, you had large fields in safe seats. I ran for two federal pre-selection. First one was Barara in 1971. There were 33 candidates and I was one of the unsuccessful 32. I then ran for Benelong and there were 25 and I was fortunate enough to win that pre-selection. You're now in very safe seats. You often see fields of fewer than 10, in one or two mm. cases, fewer than five. Mm. Now that means something, doesn't it? It means that people see these things as tied up 
I mean, how often people have come to me in recent times and said, oh, I'm thinking of nominating for so-and-so, such-and-such a seat, but I've got to bear in mind that this or that faction has already picked their candidate. Well, that is debilitating, it's discouraging, but worst of all, it's denying our party the opportunity of choosing some outstanding outsiders. You should always put into Parliament a mixture. You need to put people in whose life's background has been uh, in politics, but you also need to put in people who've been outstandingly successful in uh, their chosen profession. If, if, if we'd have had the factional system in the 1950s, we probably wouldn't have seen Sir Garfield Barwick, mm. uh, the great barrister of that era, go into mm. Parliament. Mm. You might not have yeah. seen Bert Evatt, mm. a High Court judge, step no. down and, and go in for the Labor Party. So basically you're saying factionalism has killed candidature. Just one example of that before we go to a break. I mean, Joe Hockey was appointed ambassador to Washington. You say this in the book in 2015 by Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, North Sydney, blue ribbon, blue, blue, blue ribbon, Liberal seat, three candidates for pre-selection. When Joe Hockey had a majority of 16%, for the reason that you've identified, people knew they had no chance. It had all been even sorted out. I'm afraid that's correct. Mm. We'll take a break. Prime Minister, we'll take a break. We're talking to John Winston Howard. Be back after the break. All right, back with, back with former Prime Minister John Howard. A wonderful chapter about choosing a leader. Um, I won't dwell on that other than your point that when Morrison was sworn in as Australia's PM, and you've already alluded to this, he was the fifth person to be Prime Minister since Kevin Rudd defeated you in 2007. And should Albanese win in 2025, He'd be the first Prime Minister to win re-election after serving a full term as Prime Minister since your victory in 2004. What is happening to the political system here in this country? I think it is no longer dominated by two parties, the bulk of whose members have got a mixture of life's experience. And they tend, therefore, to see politics more as an internal struggle and a balancing of factional influences and an attitude that says, oh, it's about time we had a right winger or a moderate or a left winger in such a position. And I think this is a criticism that can be made of both sides of politics, not just the Labor side, but certainly the Labor side, but also of my side of politics. And I think that is one of the things that's happening. Uh, just amplify your point in the book where you say that Labor made a mistake replacing Rudd and the Liberals made a mistake replacing Abbott. Oh, well, I, I, I think when Kevin Rudd defeated me and defeated me quite heavily, I thought he'd be in office for a couple of terms. I couldn't believe that they were so foolish as to get rid of him before he'd even finished his first term. And of course, it didn't work. Uh, he came back and he struggled and he lost. And then Tony Abbott won with a very comfortable majority and he was thrown out. Now, why did it happen? Was there a central policy issue involved in either of those removals? No. I can understand changing a leader who goes off on a tangent of his or her own, but to get rid of somebody and then, as Julia Gillard said after she became Prime Minister, oh, it was a good government that was losing its way. Well, did she say, I'm the Prime Minister now because Kevin Rudd wanted to embrace capitalist anti-trade union policies and that's anathema to the Labor Party? No. And the same thing can be said when Malcolm Turnbull replaced Tony Abbott. He didn't nominate a major policy difference. He had some major policy differences with Tony Abbott, but they were on issues that were subjects of free votes, such as the monarchy and uh, same-sex marriage. I mean, those things were treated as open, free votes. So there was no question of, of there being a major policy dispute. Yes, and then uh, he lost 14 seats, Turnbull, and, and then was, was defeated. And people criticised you. Uh, you said you spent... When, when he won that election, I think, by one vote, and we got him out in the middle of the night and so on, you spent, you say in the book, an hour trying to persuade Turnbull to make Tony Abbott defence minister. And? And? Well, I spent some time on the phone with Malcolm Turnbull and let me say I tried and I still do retain very amicable relations with him. He's a former Prime Minister and a former colleague of mine and I don't intend to alter that approach. But I didn't spend all that hour trying to persuade Tony, make Tony defence me. We talked about a whole lot of other things and, and you'll appreciate that 
They were the sort of things I don't want to go into detail about, but making Tony defence minister was part of it. I used that as an illustration of the intensity of the, I suppose, the antagonism between the two men. Yet they weren't antagonisms based on clearly identified policy differences. The great um, uh, story, I suppose, of when McEwen said that he wouldn't serve as Deputy Prime mm. Minister in a, a Liberal Party led Bill by McMahon. Bill McMahon. Mm. There was a big policy difference involved in that. Uh, McEwen was an interventionist. He believed in far greater government involvement in the economy than did McMahon. I know they had personality problems and all of that, but that was a pretty significant argument. In fact, it dominated debate on economics for several decades, the extent to which the government should be involved. Uh, McEwen was a protectionist. McMahon was more of a free trader. Mm. Now, they were issues of substance. And I could understand people seeing a big issue at stake. Mm. But when the issues are not based on major policy divergences, you have to wonder uh, about the the purpose Absolutely. of people's involvement. You talk about turning it into a game. A magnificent chapter, can I say to our viewers, on climate change, I mentioned this earlier, and nuclear energy. You open up, uh, John Howard, by saying, I'm not blind to the scientific arguments, but neither can I ignore the almost religious fervour with which the climate change argument has been embraced by many and the absurdity of some of the symbolism. The apotheosis, in other words, at the high point of this, was surely when a 16-year-old Swedish girl appeared on the front cover of Time magazine as Person of the Year. Now, before I get you to comment, immediately after that, you, you make this brilliant observation that on June 24, 1974, the same magazine printed, quote, however widely the weather varies from place to place and time to time, when meteorologists take an average of temperatures around the globe, they find that the atmosphere has been growing gradually cooler mm. for the past three decades. This is 1974. The trend shows no indication of reversing. Climatological Cassandras are becoming increasingly apprehensive for the weather aberrations they're studying may be the harbinger of another ice age, 1974. Uh, John Howard, come on. What are they? They think we're fools, do they? Well, that's part of the problem. Uh, we have become so, I suppose, uh, deluged with repetition of perceived but not necessarily demonstrable facts. And uh, that is just another example. The Club of Rome in the early 70s yeah. uh, predicted that we'd run out of food and we had to do something about population growth. Uh, it's fair to say that in the last 20 years, most of the examples of starvation, which are appalling blights on mankind, have resulted from political use of poverty and, and food supply to achieve political outcomes rather than from natural causes. Mm. And you quote The Lancet magazine. Uh, you say the esteemed medical journal reported the temperature rises during the past two decades in Canada and the US, this is in the book, and then the chapter on climate change, had meant more than 7,200 heat deaths a year from warming. But the study showed that the warming reduced cold deaths over the same period by 21,000. So, I mean, Surely well, both of the figures have got to yeah. be taken. And, and the problem with much of the media's coverage of this issue is that only the statistic that aids and abets the climate alarmism are quoted. Quite. And, and why, and of course, we have, you write brilliantly, we have most to lose in all of this because by demonising coal and our resources, you say, we've lost vast quantities of high-grade coal, iron ore and natural gas, 38% of the world's supply of easily recoverable uranium, a net export of energy. And you said this made us different from many other wealthy developed nations. Why have we surrendered to Paris? Well, I think it's, these are questions that I hope increasingly people are, and is why I remain an agnostic at, at the very most on climate change, at very least rather on climate change. And the, the failure of 
many people to understand that the interests of Europe, even the interests of the United States on this issue are different from ours. Quite. We are virtually unique in being a net exporter of energy, a very highly developed advanced country. Canada approaches us, but nowhere near as, uh, as dramatically. Well, you make this point, you say, it amazes me how ready many enthusiasts for action on climate change were to cast aside the huge advantage that Australia had in the name of joining an international consensus. Australia was being asked by other affluent nations to give up an advantage that those countries would not have been willing to forego. But who was proclaiming that on behalf of Australia? Well, I think there's been a, a failure on both sides, certainly a, a greater failure, I would argue, on the Labor Party side because there's been a lot more zealous, but I do accept that at the time of the last election, the coalition appeared closer to the Labor position than it had been mm. previously, and uh, that has to be that was accepted. Costly. But see, you're talking about renewables now. That's everywhere. But you make these points in the book. That's why this chapter has got to be read. I mean, Tony Abbott, you make the point established in 2014, the Warburton Inquiry to examine the renewable energy scheme, which concluded, you write, that the scheme was an expensive emissions abatement tool and provided an economically inefficient subsidy. I mean, 2014. Mm. That's a fact established by a committee read by a very highly regarded Australian businessman. Yep. And then you had to, you quote the white paper on energy of 2005, which reaffirmed the central role of cheap, reliable sources of energy in Australia's economic future. In other words, all this documentation is there. Oh, yes, there's, there's plenty of evidentiary material that's been ignored or misapplied. And what the other argument that I would put with some passion is that if you look at countries such as India, what are they aspiring for most at the moment? They're aspiring to lift the living standards of people who are living in our terms in significant poverty. And how do they best do that? By generating in the cheapest right. possible means electricity. That's it. That's and it. What do they need for that? They need... Our coal. Coal, our coal. <laughs> our coal. Our I coal. Mean... And, and so on humanitarian grounds... Yes. It's a very strong argument. Well, you cite on page 117 of the book, the Chief Scientist of Australia 2006, confirming in writing that the only dependable sources of baseload power were fossil fuels and nuclear energy. Mm. You're very strong on the nuclear front. Well, these are facts. And I haven't seen in the years that have gone by any evidence to alter that piece of advice. And even the most strident advocates of climate alarmism now will acknowledge that um, you can't guarantee that the sun will always shine and the wind will always blow. Look, we can talk all night, but finally China. You call your chapter the China Dilemma. What is the dilemma? Well, the dilemma is that um, China is both a disturbance in our region and a potential threat, but also a highly valued economic partner. I said earlier that 1.4 million Australians are of Chinese descent. I also said that China is the most widely spoken foreign language. It's a great export destination. It's an undeniable fact that the global financial crisis did not affect Australia as much as it might have because of our wonderful export trade with China. But China is a communist dictatorship. You don't have much freedom in China if you kick against the traces. It's a world away from the sort of country we are. And the leadership at the moment is far more aggressive than it was 20 years ago. Mm. It's always been a dictatorship since Mao took over. And, 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 and Mao was no inspirational leader. He's but greatly you, forward and so But, but you, did, you did express great hope in the book when you'd met the, pre, the then president of oh, China. Look, look, there, there was a different attitude yeah, then. Jiang Zemin. Uh, yeah. uh, Jiang Zemin. The attitude then was, despite our differences, yeah. we could cooperate where our, yeah. uh, our interests coincide. And he loved Beethoven and Chopin. Oh, and yes. He was, a, he was, in many <laughs> respects, the most interesting world leader I met. Uh, uh, he, he, his knowledge of Shakespeare. Yes. He, he would test my wife, who taught Shakespeare in, in her teaching <laughs> and years. And at the formal dinner, what he ended it with old Lang Syne. That's right. 
And I asked him what it was. Why did he do that? And he said, oh, remember that great movie Waterloo called Bridge. Waterloo Bridge? They played it at a sentimental time. And I thought, golly, his Blake knows movie. a bit about the genre. All right. Now, a brilliant exposition, by the way, John Howard, on Taiwan. Just a summary there of your views about Taiwan. I mean, the perception is that in the public, oh, well, Taiwan eventually will have to be absorbed by China because China always had uh, a, a proprietorial control over Taiwan. That's a myth, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, uh, Taiwan was controlled Formosa. by Japan yeah. between 1895 and 1945. That's it. And that was part of the settlement coming out of the Sino-Japanese War at the end of the 18th century, end of the 19th century. So um, that's wrong. And a respected poll that by the Pew Research Institute found that 66% of Taiwanese people regarded themselves as Taiwanese and only a small percentage, less than 10, regarded themselves as Chinese and the rest regarded themselves as both. So that says to me that there's a strong streak of independence in Taiwan. But despite that, the Americans, to their great credit, have, have always encouraged the Taiwanese not to rock the boat, to sort of try and coexist yes. with the mainland. And it's the mainlanders, it's Beijing, mm. that's changed the quite. tune, not the Taiwanese. But you make a very valid point, which is not generally conceded today. High risks for China in trying to conquer Taiwan. You make that point. Oh, look, I think one of the things that comes out of, uh, of Ukraine and Russia, and this would be absorbed in Beijing, is that they might raid Taiwan, take it over, and what spend the next 20 years trying to subjugate a sullen, resentful province of 24 million people. Yes, I mean, at the end of the day, is that a risk China, do you think, is going to take? No, I don't think she will. I could be wrong. But my guess is that the Chinese will have been sobered by what is happening in Ukraine. Right. And you're confident that China does understand the importance of Australia to their trading interests. How do we get this back on an even keel? Well, I think you persevere. And I don't have any criticism of what the Albanese government has done on this particular front. It's largely been a continuation of what we did. And I think the comments that have been made by Penny Wong uh, and by the uh, Deputy Prime Minister Miles have been quite sound. I think they've largely adopted pragmatic self-interest as their guiding principle in dealing with China, and that's in Australia's best interest. We don't need to gratuitously attack them, but equally we have to stick up for our values and we have to advocate in the interests of Australian citizens mm. who are being denied human rights in China. Right. I think you're talking about a schoolboy point scoring. Yeah, we, don't we should need avoid that, that completely. Do avoid that. OK, before you go, as Prime Minister, would you have ever assumed or sought from the Governor-General portfolio responsibilities exercised by your colleagues and not told your colleagues and not told the Parliament, not told the voter and maintained secrecy? No. I'm surprised that this happened. Uh, I'm glad that Scott Morrison has made a detailed statement and put it into context. But the cabinet system is really very simple. You appoint somebody to administer a portfolio. If you're not happy with him or her, you get rid of them and appoint another one. <laughs> if one of them gets ill, you appoint an acting minister. If you have a disagreement about an important policy issue as prime minister, you have a talk with the minister. And if the minister persists, you take the matter to cabinet and cabinet resolves it. And if the minister doesn't like what cabinet resolves to do, well, he or she's got the option of resigning. Mm. But I don't remember that happening very often. No. How damaging has this been to Scott Morrison? Oh, I think over the last couple of days, very, but he'll recover from it. Mm. I think this suggestion that he should leave parliament is ludicrous. Great to talk to you. Phenomenal contribution you made politically. But I tell you what, as a historian and a chronicler of the past, uh, this stuff is magnificent. A sense of balance. Beautiful, easy to read, compulsory reading. Now, essays, there it is on your screen, a collection of essays by our 25th Prime Minister, an Australian iconic figure. Lovely to talk to you. Always lovely to hear your views, John. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. Here is John Howard. Look, I'll get to the dysfunctionality of the Andrews government in Victoria shortly. Thank you for your letters on that. And we won't be ignoring the nonsense in Queensland, but the current gold medal for incompetence must rest with the New South Wales government. 
endless hours and waste of taxpayers' money has been spent on the Barillaro affair, appointed Barillaro to a trade role in New York. Eminently suitable, widely experienced, a tremendous ability to personally engage. Barillaro has been a small businessman. He was in the vanguard of the argument for nuclear energy, which makes him full bottle on the biggest crisis facing both our countries, Australia and America, energy. And as you know, we have a phenomenal energy export capacity. But we have the upper house and the New South Wales Parliament turning itself inside out at your expense to find that something crooked and corrupt had occurred to enable Barillaro to get the job. And they found nothing. But they've made the running and the Premier Perrottet has been bringing up the rear in a cloud of dust. Can't see the forest through his trees. So Premier Perrottet now has this report by former Public Service Commissioner Graham Head and it reveals nothing. The, the, the Premier said, oh, mistakes happen from time to time. But Perrottet at no time has stood his ground to argue that the so-called litany of mistakes over the Barillaro appointment was nothing more than a political invention, a determination to destroy his government. Perrottet admitted yesterday there was nothing in the report suggesting Barillaro had done anything wrong. And he, quote, acknowledged the distress that this has caused many people. So Barillaro has done nothing wrong, but it was a forward process. No details about that, but Barillaro's lost his job. What are we talking about here? In the middle of all this, the former Trade Minister, Stuart Ayres, one of the few people in the New South Wales government with real ability, was forced to resign over his alleged role in the so-called Barillaro affair. But hang on. Ayres was forced to resign because Perrottet had seen, at that time, parts of this report that, quote, raise a question as to whether Mr Ayres has complied with the Ministerial Code of Conduct, unquote. As I said at the time, this stretches the credibility of the ordinary person, doesn't pass the pub test. Raises a question? Shouldn't Mr Ayres have kept his job until the question was answered? But in that press release of August 3, Premier Perrottet ended by saying, a further review will therefore be undertaken to determine if Mr Ayres has complied with the code, unquote. So the bloke lost his job, his deputy leadership, his ministerial role in critical portfolios because of a question over an unspecified breach of the ministerial code of conduct, yet there's to be a review on whether he actually complied with the code of conduct headed by Bruce McClintock SC. But Ayers has lost his job. And he doesn't know why. Then what about Alini Patinos, the Minister for Small Business and Fair Trading? She's lost her job. We don't know why. I hope she knows why. Wink, wink, nod, nod, bullying. What I do know is that she clashed with this former building commissioner, David Chandler, who resigned. And there would not be a person in the building industry who didn't clash with the arrogant David Chandler. I think Patinos might, might have made it clear that she, not Chandler, was the minister. So Barillaro has done nothing wrong. He's lost his job. We don't know what Ayers has done, nor does he but he's lost his job. The taxpayer doesn't know why Patinos has lost her job. I was at a meeting today after lengthy discussion on several issues. A leading businessman in this country said out loud in relation to the New South Wales government, and I quote, I've never had to deal with such incompetence, unquote. Well, sadly, that incompetence is now there for everyone to see. Look, just before we go, Prime Minister Albanese, as you know, is talking about a voice to the constitution when the situation in remote Aboriginal communities is a stain on the nation. A study released by the Australian National University last week identified at least 165 remote Aboriginal communities that rely on drinking water that doesn't meet basic safety standards. Last month, the Albanese government scrapped the cashless debit card and the grog bans in remote communities. A decision, Senator Jacinta Price, Labor's Marion Scrimmager and Yana Stewart three of them have said is a travesty. Well, since Albanese made the move, there's already been a spike in violence, with Alice Springs police recording at least 54 domestic violence incidents in the first 48 hours after the grog ban was lifted. So much for the left respecting and protecting women. Unfortunately, it seems the only thing Albanese cares about when it comes to our Aboriginal population is his beloved voice to Parliament. The man clearly hasn't done his homework. Earth to elbow. We already have Indigenous voices elbow in the parliament who were democratically elected. 
How about the outstanding Senator Jacinta Price? What of Pat Dodson, Linda Burney, Malandiri McCarthy? Do they not have a voice? You see, the worst part about all of this is that when we have real Aboriginal role models standing up for what they believe in, woke white elites try to tear them down. Just ask Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price. This morning we learnt that Aboriginal leader Warren Mundine has been bombarded with hundreds of racial threats and abusive messages for daring to oppose Albo's Indigenous voice to the Parliament. Warren told the Daily Mail, and I quote, I've had more racial abuse and threats in the past two weeks than my entire life. It's coming from people who aren't ignorant or uneducated. They just disagree with my stance. He said, quote, if a person is ignorant or racist, you can turn them around. I've done it before. But when it's coming from educated people who are using racial attacks on you because they don't agree with you, that's dangerous, unquote. Warren said he'd been repeatedly labelled a coconut. That's a derogatory term for Aboriginals, meaning black on the outside, but white on the inside. He's been called an Uncle Tom, another racist slur, as well as a Judas. According to the Daily Mail, a more eloquent comment came from a white finance executive who called Warren Mundine and Senator Jacinta Price hypocrites for, quote, using your Aboriginality to legitimise the deficit narrative and empower privileged non-Indigenous people to preserve the status quo, unquote, whatever that means. As Elon Musk said earlier this year, at its heart, wokeness is divisive, exclusionary and hateful. It basically gives mean people a shield to be mean and cruel, armoured in false virtue, unquote. I wonder if only the woke left spend as much time trying to help Australia's remote Aboriginal communities as they do in tearing down those who articulate the real troubles in Indigenous communities and offer proper solutions. A voice to the parliament, sadly, is not one of those solutions. Well, that's it from me tonight. Fred Paul coming up in the next hour. Look, unfortunately, I won't be with you tomorrow night. I have to attend a funeral in Canberra tomorrow of a very fine Australian political figure, David Barnett, who worked with me in the Prime Minister's office in the very difficult and troubling times of the dismissal and the rise of the Fraser government, trying to deal with its inherited economic mess. David Barnett was always a force for good. He'll be remembered appropriately tomorrow at a service in the old Parliament House where we worked together. Jake Thrupp, the young man who did a wonderful job for me on Monday night, will play his second innings tomorrow night. I know you'll enjoy his observations and his content. I'll see you next week. Thanks for watching ADH TV. I'm Alan Jones for now. Good night.